We want to acknowledge that Carleton University and the other locations where we make this podcast are on traditional, unceded Algonquin territory. Move towards having me as like telling the story to show how knowledge is really mediated by who we are, how we're positioned. Welcome, 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 everyone. Welcome to the Barton Podcast. My name is Phil Fremont, and I'm joined with co-host Billy Flynn. Hello, everyone, and uh, welcome to another edition of the Department Podcast. Uh, we're in for a special treat today. We have a special edition of the Department, and in this episode, we launch Gringo Love, an ethnographic novel about sex tourism in Brazil. That's right. And this special edition of the Department, Phil, uh, basically ties in nicely and continues uh, the theme that we've been exploring in the last two episodes, uh, namely the use of storytelling in anthropological research and the use of graphic novels and illustrated works in the use of teaching first year and undergraduate sociology as well. Mm -hmm. Because of the COVID-19 pandemic, we thought it would be best if instead of having a socially distanced book launch, instead we would do an interview with the three co-authors of the book, uh, Mariev Karimazan, Deborah Santos and myself. And one of the advantages of this method is that we actually got to speak to Deborah Santos, the Brazilian graphic artist who illustrated all 120 pages of the graphic novel Gringo Love. And one of the really nice aspects to this was that I'd never spoken with or met Deborah before. And you were very much a key part of that, Phil, weren't you? Yeah, you know, uh, when you approached me initially with the idea of doing a podcast book launch, um, I didn't quite know what that would look like, uh, especially since um, one of the key players, Deborah, um, is Brazilian, is in Brazil, and speaks Portuguese. Um, so it, pre <laughs> it presented a, a little bit of a challenge, but I think I think we captured uh, our interview and our talk uh, well uh, in uh, what's coming up shortly on, on this podcast episode. Um, but one of the things that um, is different is that we were able to paraphrase or do a rough translation uh, of her Portuguese. That's uh, Marie-Ève Carimoisson uh, who did that. Um, so listeners, what you're going to hear when it's Deborah talking is uh, her voice, but sort of tuned out sort of lower volume, and then Mariev providing an English sort of paraphrasing or contextualizing of what Deborah is talking about. And I think this format works as an interactive, long distance uh, sort of way of doing a book launch. Absolutely. And, um, you know, for those of you who are interested in having a more complete translation, uh, then we are going to be releasing uh, the full translated text of the interview at a future date. Uh, yeah. But just remember that uh, Mariev is translating from Portuguese into English on the spot. And basically, she's providing us with a rough and ready, uh, usable translation um, uh, of some of what Deborah is saying as well. So just wanted to preface that by saying it's not a, a literal uh, or full translation by any stretch of the imagination. Yeah. And, you know, Billy, we could have went back into the studio to do that. But uh, one of the benefits of doing it the way that we have is that it really does show uh, the sort of aspects of collaborative work, especially academic work and especially multimedia work um, that happens. You know, mm -hmm. um, knowledge is international. A lot of our work brings us to different places where different languages are spoken. So um, I think this is kind of one of our attempts to show uh, this sort of uh, behind the scenes so to speak, of working collaboratively as well. Speaking as a monolinguist myself, uh, it was fantastic to have uh, Mariev there to be able to translate from Portuguese uh, into English for the purposes of the interview. And uh, it also does speak to, uh, I think, you know, the nature of um, anthropological work and the nature of collaborative work as well, that you often end up working in multiple languages that require mediation and translation too, right? Yeah, and uh, what we did 
uh, end up cutting out of the interview was sort of the, our back and forth. So my broken Portuguese that I've learned from broken Spanish, um, <laughs> my my conversations with Mariev in French, uh, but it's half French, half English. So it was this like mix of like actually kind of like four languages that you know, but the essence of what we were saying, the the reason uh, behind the words uh, got mm -hmm. through, the message got through, so to speak. And uh, that also follows through on a few themes uh, that we've been tracing over the last couple episodes. Absolutely, absolutely. So I think um, one of the kind of key themes really, Phil, has been finding new ways to produce and make available a specialist academic knowledge uh, to a non-specialist, uh, non-academic audience as well. Yeah, and that follows through uh, from our interview that we did with Sonia around storytelling and the interview with Tom Kempel uh, around using graphic novels, uh, The Watchmen and the illustrated marks as well. But yeah, like Sonia Gray's uh, interview really spoke a lot to the use of storytelling uh, and the kind of use of storytelling as a powerful methodological vehicle uh, for dealing with uh, anthropological material, as well as Tom using these illustrated texts and graphic novels uh, to talk to first year students about, you know, some pretty, pretty interesting topics in relation to graphic novels and media in general as well. Indeed. If you've missed those past episodes, if you are new here uh, or returning but missed those, you can find the whole catalog of our episodes on our website. That's www.departmentpodcast.ca. And while we're talking about where to find us, you can email us at info at departmentpodcast.ca or you can follow us on Twitter and we are at departmentpod. You can catch the uh, podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, uh, Google Podcasts. It's still a thing. It's still out there, folks. Um, and a bunch more, probably your favorite podcast app, as well as on the Sociology Anthropology website. That's the Carlton Sociology Anthropology website. Uh, there is a snazzy new player that you're able to listen to the department in the department which is kind of neat. Mm -hmm. But more importantly, we'd love to hear from you. Take a few minutes, send us your suggestions for segments. What do you want to hear? What do you want us to talk about? Or maybe you have something to say about sociology and anthropology or higher education more broadly. Maybe you're a grad student or an undergrad taking your very first university class. Maybe you're a seasoned educator, or maybe you're teaching your first online course. Maybe you're behind the scenes, keeping the machinery well-oiled and ensuring that everything works smoothly for students and faculty. Share your thoughts, share your ideas. They're important to us. And also a big thanks to Carleton University's Department of Sociology and Anthropology for sponsoring this podcast. We also really appreciate all the hard work that goes on behind the scenes to promote the show from social media posts to updates on the website. Thanks, Phil. So let's get on with the show then. Let's get on with it. First of all, I want to say it's really, really nice to, to talk to you and to meet you um, virtually. Um, I've never spoken to you before, so I just want to say um, it's really nice to meet you in person. <laughs> hey, thank you for the invitation. <laughs> I'm sorry about my bad English. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, it's perfect. I, it's better than my horrible Portuguese. I have about five words, so uh, it's a lot better, Deborah. No problem at all. Um, you know, we've we've been working together for the last four years uh, on Gringo Love, um, and this is the first opportunity I've had to speak with you. Uh, so I have four or five questions I want to ask. Okay. You know, why don't you introduce yourself, uh, you know, and we can start off with an introduction, yeah? So basically, she's been uh, doing uh, illustration as a graphic artist. Uh, since 2015, um, and um, she said that she's uh, from Fortaleza in the northeast of Brazil, uh, that her knowledge of Natal is primarily through going there as a child um, at the beach <laughs> with her family. Um, and she was saying that her knowledge of Ponta Negra was mainly through the picture that we sent her and using also Google Map that she was able to familiarize herself with the setup. Uh, she's also been doing a lot of uh, illustration for people 
and including she's also been working with the University of uh, the Federal University of Seara in Fortaleza, uh, where she's also been doing some educational um, illustrations for another project of comic um, while she was working on Gringo Love. What did you find interesting about the project of Gringo Love uh, when when Mariev first contacted you? There were two main reasons why Debra was interested in uh, taking part in this project. The first one was that she really likes ethnography. Um, she did her degree in social science, and what she most enjoyed were reading ethnographies. Um, she also... Um, thought that it was an interesting project because it was about women, by a woman, um, and it was a project about the reality that she's familiar with because it's a reality that's common in other beaches in the northeast of Brazil. So there are familiarities between Natal and, and Fortaleza because they are both northeastern beach uh, with a lot of European tourism. So they were... It, it was a familiar story, I guess. So first of all, I wanted to say congratulations to you all, um, Marie-Ève, Deborah, and Billy, for the publication of Gringo Love Stories of Sex Tourism in Brazil. Um, I've been looking through the book, and my question is to uh, each of you in turn, um, but it looks and feels and reads like something very different. Um, coming from the social sciences, I haven't engaged in ethnographic uh, material like this uh, before. So my first question to Mariev is, um, how did you get the idea to convert your research into a graphic novel um, in the first place? Well, I was struggling over how to make my research a little bit more accessible. So basically, when I was done writing my PhD, um, I started to try to think about whether I wanted to write a book, a classic ethnography, publish a few articles. And I was talking with Billy about how I was kind of struggling with how we are really trained when we do a PhD to talk to a very specialized audience with a very limited number of people. And I actually wanted to, to be able to be in conversation with um, people that were involved in campaigning against sex tourism, the activists, and also wanted a larger like audience to be able to engage with my work. And at the time, um, we both had started to really enjoy reading graphic novels, graphic novel like um, uh, Mouse by by uh, Art Spiegelman or Persepolis by uh, Marjan Satrapri or Fun Home by Alison Bechel. And Billy had the idea, actually, so I have to give him the credit for that. Um, it really is his idea, basically, that it could be an interesting medium to think about how to communicate knowledge. Um and initially, I have to say, um, what I had in mind was a very different project. I was thinking of something really modest, really small, like maybe twenty pages. Um, and 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 it just became something else as we went through it and as we started to try to do it. And Billy, what sort of spurred your initial uh, idea that this could be converted into? that this research could be converted into a graphic novel form. We'll give you that insight. I joined the Ottawa Library. Uh, they have a fantastic graphic novel and comic section downtown in Ottawa. Mm -hmm. yeah. uh, and when we had moved uh, to Ottawa, I had um, started taking out a lot of graphic novels, like, you know, uh, several every week and just chewing through them. And basically... It was in my mind, right? I'd read sort of, you know, very serious kind of journalistic graphic novels by people like Joe Sacco, right? Uh, that are serious, kind of dealing with very serious subjects, as well as the one that Mariev mentioned, you know, Mouse by Art Spiegelman. And there's dozens of other graphic novels that, um, you know, treat very serious subjects, but 
kind of communicate those subjects in visual and kind of sequential ways. Um, so basically it was, uh, at the moment, it was me kind of being immersed in graphic novels, uh, but I've always uh, liked using images and visuals uh, as teaching aids uh, in my classes in sociology. Um, so I always find that, you know, to sort of visually represent something is, is a very different kind of task mm. and brings yeah. with it a very different set of sort of criteria and responsibility than say writing something out so um yeah it's it kind of it was a sort of a progression a natural progression if you like of my kind of visual interests in photography and comics uh but also as a result of my kind of academic interests in finding new ways to uh tell stories to people uh that uh, you know they usually actually wouldn't have access to right because they're right. you know behind academic journals and sort of very technical yes. language you know yeah 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 and I have a similar question for Deborah, um, specifically around, uh, I'm curious to know about your sort of process, but approaching um, the illustrated aspect of Gringo Love, um, did you do anything different or how did, or did you treat Gringo Love differently than some of your other, other uh, illustrated works? Deborah was just saying that... Um, she was uh, talking about how one of the challenge had to do with the length because it's more than a hundred pages of illustration and to sustain the interest of the reader through a hundred pages requires really to think through the story you tell and like a lot of the, the story is based on ethnographic research that's primarily the primary source for the material were interview based so in that context a lot of the a lot of the illustrations that we were requesting were people talking to each other mm. so Deborah had the challenge of trying to make that dynamic and moving and so she was saying like in a graphic novel you need to constantly change the angle of the camera or like the angle that you look at and so um, her challenge was to try to continually change the scene and the setting and the move have a close-up and then uh, move out of the scene so that we will be moving a little bit and it will create a little bit more um, of a dynamic scene. Mm. So she said that was one of the main challenge with that project because there's, there's not such a big story ultimately. Um, yeah, it's people going to the beach and to the bars, right? For the most, you know, that's the kind of story, like conversations, you know? Yeah. It, Deborah, it was it was also one of the like it was also probably the biggest challenge that we faced, and I, I found very difficult was, you know, uh, it's so many conversations. It it sound it began to sound very boring, right, and very kind of dead. So I think that with your visual expertise, you really helped to take what was a very kind of boring script and and kind of really make it alive in a, in a way it couldn't it couldn't have been done by us right uh so uh, i want to thank you for uh for helping us with that really difficult sort of task of how do you make 120 pages of people talking right i remember so many times we will send you something in writing with uh, suggestions and you'd come back with us with a different organization of the different panel and you will have such a visual way mm. of making what we had suggested better. Um, so in terms of the process, definitely like it was <laughs> amazing to be able to work with you. I think that Billy and I were naive mm. um, when we started to work on this project because we both never had work on trying to translate academic research into a graphic format. And I think we underestimate the complexity of Ooh, yeah. trying to create a story, um, especially a story that's not a story <laughs> that's based <laughs> on conversation. Um, and also how image and text interact together in very specific way in, in a graphic 
kind of mode of telling stories that's not simple, I guess, to, to convey meaning uh, in a way that's evocative and rich and not boring, I guess. Mas, assim, é realmente um desafio. So Deborah was just saying that uh, it, it was a challenge, definitely, and she saw how... Um, While we were doing the story, we became better. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Because at the beginning, at the beginning with our inexperience, we definitely had a lot of dialogues, um, like way too much dialogue. And the story was very much dialogue based. Um, and Deborah was saying like that this is a typical way that people go when they start constructing a, nar a narrative um, and they don't have the experience of doing a graphic story. They rely on the dialogue without realizing that it's the composition of the of the panel, the combo of image plus text that create meaning. But she said that with time, we eventually started to get it a bit and that we eventually were able to reduce the text. And also she was saying that um, some of the ideas that uh, we developed, especially the map, were very visually power powerful or very good. And she, she liked uh, drawing them. I have to, um, to say that here, I feel that Really, that's where I was able myself to kind of draw on both Billy's expertise and, and your expertise, Deborah, because it's really Billy who had those kind of moments of like, this is how we're going to illustrate this visually. Um, so he was the one having the, the conception and it was actually quite special to have you, Deborah, materializing Billy's idea and to see that like coming, coming together. Um, so in that sense, I think it was truly a collaboration. For, for me, it was a dream come true because Deborah, I, I cannot draw at all. You know, um, I stopped drawing when I was six years old, right? So I can't draw at all. And for me, what was magical was for me, to come up with an idea and to write it on paper to send it to you and then you would send back this amazing image like a, a visualization of an idea in my mind and for me that was actually like incredible to to have someone who could put their own interpretation on my interpretation you know uh so it, it was a, a learning process and a great process for me too for sure I, I have one question, Deborah, about about your artwork uh, and you as an artist working on this, right? Um, do you have, was there any particular images that you really like uh, in, you know, do you have a favorite set of images in Gringo Love? I, I know I have some favorite images and, and one of my favorite images is actually the cover uh, image. Um, the sequence, you know, that you did with the two women walking from the villa over to uh, the Alto. Um, And just the look in their faces as they walk along the road, it's its just, it's so Natal, you know, everything is captured. The kids playing soccer, the, the telephone poles and electrical wires. Uh, so my question for you is, do you have images um, that you particularly are proud of in Gringo Love or that you really like? Um, yeah, I'm just wondering. Deborah really liked um, the the same image as Billy, uh, the one on the the, the book cover. Uh, but also, she was mentioning that uh, she really likes the map, uh, drawing the map, um, um, and also she said that she really likes um, to draw the scene that were based in the street along the beach, so Erivan Franca Street. Um, because she would spend time on Google Street View um, and she would be like immersing herself into the scene um, and she would really feel like uh, that she's almost there when she was drawing those. So she really enjoyed the images that are based there. On the, the book cover, um, she did show the book cover to a friend of hers who's from Natal And who said that she recognized the street? Oh, no way. <laughs> oh, fantastic. Oh, that's fantastic, huh? 
And Deborah's reaction was the same. She was like yeah, delighted that very proud that she recognized the street. I I I have to say that this is one of the things that was really important for me. Um, and that's why I approached you, Deborah. So I don't know if you know that, but um basically when it was time for me to figure how to go about this, um, I really wanted to work with a, a Brazilian illustrator, a woman, and ideally I wanted someone that would be familiar with the Northeast um, because I didn't want um, s something from the south of Brazil with um, perhaps their own conception of what the Northeast is like, because in Brazil, um, there's different ways in which regions are perceived. So it was really important for me to have a woman from the Brazilian Northeast drawing. Um, and when we started working together, it really was something that I feel that gives so much, uh, like it's, it was really important for me to recognize the place um, and so I do feel that the, the, if anything, the illustrations provide a sense of Ponta Negra and Natal, um, and 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 it's thanks to your 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 drawings, they basically Debra, but also your familiarity. Like mm. there's details mm -hmm. <laughs> that you constantly added to certain scenes that we would not ask you to do, but that you would think about, like. Um, the churrasco you know, or <laughs> <laughs> the churrasco at the beach or the agua de coco at the beach or like um, the cracks on the book cover like the cracks on the walls like and the texture of the streets um, the surfer walking with their surfboard up a street all these kind of everyday scenes they really feel familiar like I recognize yeah. those places. São cidades um pouco parecidas, né? Natal and Fortaleza, because they're very close um, in terms of geography, but they're also very similar. So a lot of those details are <laughs> just everyday scenes for her. They're very familiar. They're just her, like, details that she doesn't even think about because they're part of the everyday. Kind of building on the graphic novel form, um, Deborah and uh, Marie-Ève, I'd be really interested to know about how you approached questions of time and questions of place in the book. Um, again, flipping through it and reading it, I see there's a lot of effort put into showing different place, but also showing time in very intricate ways. So I'd just like to hear you both kind of speak about that. Maybe, uh, Deborah, um, you can go first. In terms of time, um, one of the things that, that happened is that Ponta Negra has changed a lot. And so some of the things that she was paying attention to was to make sure that she will draw Ponta Negra as it was in 2007-2008. Um, and uh, because there's been a way more high-rise, for instance, now, um, bars and clubs keep opening and closing and changing. So she was trying to to stay, I guess, uh, truthful enough to the context to the, of 2007-2008 with also the images that I provided her with. The other thing was the character. So to talk about time and place, I guess one of the things is to talk about character. And so one of the div device or strategy that we suggested was to differentiate um, Eva, the anthropologist, in the story versus Eva, the anthropologist, who's telling the story in the present with drawing Eva with glasses um, as the narrator. So that was one of the ways that we showed the passing of time. And there were many different characters because we wanted to tell different experiences. Um, so it was also about like making sure that in the drawing that they will have features that will really distinguish them, uh, whether it was a tattoo or a person or 
kind of a style of hair um, that will that will make the character recognizable um, in different time. And Marie-Ève, you kind of um, also have uh, an implication for time and space. Um, and I'd like to hear you speak on that and particularly about the experience of being reflexive about your research, but then having this second reflexive moment about how to portray you being reflexive or how to show you being reflexive in your research, which is like a double reflexivity thing, I think. <laughs> yes. Um Maybe first, uh, what I want to say about your question about time and place was that a big concern that I had when I was doing this was that I wanted to show also what kind of place Pontanegra was in terms of distinct social place, social classes. Um, and I wanted to be able to um, transport the reader from the villa, which is kind of the oldest and poorest part of Pontanegra, where a lot of the local residents live, um, and to show like how um, um, you know Pontanegra is kind of a place that has like many different aspect to it. So there's the the villa where a lot of the women who work um, and were trying to meet foreign men uh, live and to show like the more tourist space that are more middle class and that are also frequented by um, a middle class Natalense. And so in terms of place, there was that concern that 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 was really like throughout. That was something that was important, and there were different spaces in Ponta Negra that I wanted to show, and I wanted to show how tourism had transformed the place and the kind of tensions that were brought about by different stake over belonging and and space, especially with the ways in which the beach has become increasingly privatized um, through security practices where, um, you know, the locals have less and less access to the beach. Um, so there were a lot of these things are hard to do <laughs> visually, I found, like so, some of it. But we, I think we were, I hope we were able to illustrate a little bit of that. And in terms of time, anthropology, I found, is um, very slow to immerse yourself, take the time to get to know a place um, and write about it. Um, it takes a lot of time. And by the time that I was doing the graphic novel um, and the time it took us to do the graphic novel, um, now it feels like I'm writing about uh, a different time historically, that that the context of 2007, 2008 and 2014 uh, in Brazil is is a completely different context to what's going on today because there has been an intensification of the whole security apparatus. The beach is quasi privatized now, and um, also in a post Bolsonaro in a global pandemic kind of world. Um, yeah, Ponta Negra has become a very different place. And so it it also feels I was not aware that I was <laughs> writing about a particular historical moment, I guess. But now that it's over, I can see that. Um, and in terms of, yeah, the double reflexivity that you're talking about, um, in terms of 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 thinking about that, I think when I started the project, it was a bit of a struggle in terms of like which story to tell, how to tell this, what kind of story I wanted to tell. And one of my aim was to dispel certain ideas that people have about sex tourism. Um, 
especially ideas about women as necessarily and exclusively sexualized victims. There's a lot of like very sensationalist images about sex tourism that circulate. And I wanted the graphic novel to like tell a different affective visual stories where we will see the complexity of women's circumstances and life choices. And like, I really struggled with which story to tell. And eventually in conversation with Billy, I eventually like moved towards having me as like telling the story to show how knowledge is really mediated um, you know, by who we are, how we're positioned. Um, and so it was important to insert moments of, of the anthropologist thinking about what she's doing because it is an important part of, of the process of doing research. And I, I thought it was important to have that. Well, Phil, one of the things that our listeners couldn't possibly see uh, in that interview was actually the technical setup. And it seemed Mm -hmm. to me like a fairly complicated but very effective way of doing international interviews. I was wondering, could you tell us a little bit more about how you went setting all that up? Yeah, so one of the tools in the podcaster's uh, tool chest, so to speak, um, are these sets of tools that allow us to connect uh, virtually, but audio only. So think of Zoom um, as, um, you know, a meeting room, but uh, for audio only. Um, so one of the tools that I like to, to use is Zencaster, um, Z or Z-E-N, C-A-S-T-R, Zencaster. Uh, it's been around for a little while now. And basically what this uh, device does is you log into a website and it works, uh, you know, as long as you have an internet browser and a good internet connection. Um, it records your audio locally, so onto your computer, and then uploads it. So the benefit of doing it this way is that you don't get uh, that sort of uh, live telephone sort of uh, feel to the calls. It right. feels very much like you're in the studio. Hmm. And one of the the benefits of this is uh, it it uh, scales up. So if you have a good uh, podcast setup, so if you have a good mic with an interface or maybe a USB mic, uh, it will capture that quality as well. So you can, uh, in essence, record uh, people at a distance uh, at high quality. Uh, and Zencaster has a uh, free version, uh, so anyone can sort of do it. Uh, it allows multiple users at the same time, and it's really a, a good tool uh, while we're in these socially distanced times uh, to connect with people to record audio. Absolutely, and uh, it's one of the things that we spoke about briefly in the interview as well. Uh, was myself and Maria were, you know, amazed at how smoothly the interview went. Mm-hmm. Uh, despite the fact that me and Mariev were in one room, you were in a, your own house, yes. quite a distance away, and Deborah was in Fortaleza, uh, several thousand kilometers away in Brazil as well. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, the finished audio um, that Zencaster, or there are other competitors to Zencaster as well, um, the finished audio that it spits out um, times everything so that there's no delay. So mm-hmm. in our actual call, uh, there is a small amount of delay, uh, but in the actual finished audio, there wasn't. So that actually makes editing it up uh, a whole lot easier. Um, and I've been using Zencaster equivalents for many years now. Uh, I was using another tool uh, called Cast uh, for previous podcast. Uh, worked on the same sort of premise. Uh, but the idea here is that you get a technology that can scale up to your audio quality. Things like Zoom or YouTube Live work, um, but they compress the audio down. So, you you know, if you have a really good audio setup, really good mic, uh, it's not gonna sound the way it should. Um, But these uh, services, Zencaster in particular, um, allow you to sound uh, your best, which is uh, what we want when we're recording audio. Speaking on the topic of time and space, one of the questions that you broached in the interview and one of the questions that we're going to look at in the second part of this interview uh, were questions that centered around the themes of time and space. 
and yeah. in particular how they related to or how they were manifest or how those issues were dealt with in the form of graphic novel. Uh, I was just wondering, Phil, what do you have a particular interest in all things temporal and spatial? Or uh? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, I do. Um, you know, one of the one of the things that always intrigues me and fascinates me, and it, it came up uh, when I was reading Gringo Love, but it's this idea of our ability to compress, but also elongate time. Um, so in the instance of uh, Gringo Love, uh, time is compressed because uh, Mariev goes back and forth uh, mm -hmm. between time and returns to the field. Uh, and that sort of time lapse is compressed, right? But right. at the same time, each frame, um, its interaction uh, is elongated in time. So, uh, uh, you know, a sort of very quick uh, sort of uh, interaction or interview or chat with someone at a table uh, in, a, in a cafe uh, can be elongated into several pages in, mm -hmm. in the graphic novel. And I think uh, that that capability to compress, but at the same time, elongate time is something that podcasts and graphic novels have a lot in common. Um, you know, for this interview, for example, uh, we spent uh, over an hour chatting with Deborah, um, but the compressed version of it uh, isn't an hour long, right? It's uh, quite yeah. shorter. But at the same time, there's um, this uh, elongation that happens. So there is space, uh, so to speak. There's some uh, silences in the interview. You can hear the sort of thinking that's going into it. So it's not so compressed that we lose the nuance um, mm. of the interview. And I think those things are always important for me. If you want to go behind the scenes of an editor, <laughs> you're, you're wanting to um, sort of toil with the idea of compression and elongation, particularly of time. I mean, these issues of time, space, compression, all of these kind of issues are really coming to the fore more and more these days as a result of, you know, the pandemic, COVID-19 and, Absolutely. you know, these kind of more remote forms of communication too, right? Yeah. And, you know, it's the sociology in me, but I'm drawn towards the work of George Zimmel, uh, particularly around time and um, the way that we experience time in the more sort of anthropological, phenomenological way, right? Um, but uh, time is an experience, but time is also highly socialized. It's relational. Um, and what I love so much about this particular interview with Deborah is that uh, while we're translating things, while Mariev is translating, Deborah is just sort of sitting patiently. And her experience of that must have been very different than our experience receiving the information in a different language and then uh, hearing it again from Mariev. Um, so I kind of positioned myself in uh, Deborah's uh, seat at the podcast table as well. And her experience of time was very different uh, than ours across a large geographical space. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, um, I think that kind of sets us up nicely for... Uh, going into the second part of our interview, Phil, doesn't it? Yeah. In this second part, we'll be talking a little bit more about collaborative work and what it's like to work across distances, but also across uh, fields. Yes. Farmers love that stuff, especially. <laughs> Here's the second part of that interview. What was the collaboration like? Uh, what was the collaborative process like to work with me and Mariev in Canada, sending you a script, you sending us back images, we sending you back revisions, sometimes maybe too many. I apologize for the map, Deborah. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm really sorry about the 20 drafts of the map. I, that's my fault. Okay. Uh, but yeah, so I, I just want to know what was it like? Is it Sorry, was it the first time that you worked collaboratively with other people uh, in the kind of context? In terms of the collaboration, uh, Deborah was saying that it was, um, she has been collaborating with people on different projects in all sorts of different ways. Um, but this was really the first time that she was uh, involved in a project that was so big. Like it was her first graphic novel before she had done illustration, but uh, more like a smaller illustration. So it was the first graphic novel. And it's true, she said like that there were a lot of revision, <laughs> <laughs> but she said you don't need to apologize for it because um, it was, uh, it's, 
what makes it better. And she thinks they were important and necessary revisions. And that ultimately, that's what happened when you're working on such a big project and also working with an academic press, um, which changed a lot how we work. Also, we had to go through the peer review process. And so that was also her first time working in that context. But she says that she learned a lot doing this project and now she's working on a similar uh, project, but a smaller bit. And so she feels prepared and now she knows that the, the process involves a lot of, um, of revision. Now she knows <laughs> that there are revisions. <laughs> I kind of now want to ask my last question to all of you again. Um, and I'll start with Billy. Um, what did you learn in the process of making this project um, that you would like to share? Um, what did I learn? That's a good question. I I learned a lot of things. Uh, it was the first time I've actually ever worked on a large collaborative project. Um, so actually doing the process of writing a script, sending it back and forth, doing revisions, uh, that was that was a very sort of new process for me to to do. Um, I think in terms of one of the key things I learned was just how enormous, you know, a small idea can suddenly sort of end up becoming like a huge project, right? And it just kind of snowballs. Um, so in terms of learning that, uh, I think in future projects, I would have a more realistic sort of appreciation of the time and effort involved. And finally, uh, the main thing I learned was, I mean, basically how to how to basically take academic research that's done in necessarily technical uh, sort of, you know, technical language um, and to try to find ways to translate that, basically, that kind of specialist technical language uh, into more uh, popular, accessible, non-specialist formats, uh, and in particular, the graphic novel. So that that was really the thing that I, I felt I improved uh, and a lot on was just finding, developing ways to develop narratives and visuals in a sequence that were effective in, in communicating what, what we wanted to communicate. So I, I felt I learned a huge amount uh, in, in the last four or five years uh, on this project. Yeah. Like, as I said earlier, we were so naive and inexperienced when we began this project. And it's quite amazing to see that it ended up working, yeah. that we ultimately were able to produce um, uh, Gringo Love. And and I guess, like, I I think that there is some ways in which, like, like doing this, it's taught me that there's other ways that we can actually talk about the research that we do about anthropology, about the story that people tell us that can be also really meaningful and that it doesn't mean that it's simpler, like, or actually we, I think that, you know, we still engage with trying to show the complexity of experiences in sex tourism and so it's Tommy like that. Yeah, I need to 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 plan for like it to be a way more complex, um, like so that it's feasible. Um, it's Tommy that I need to, um, uh, I, I guess, plan more for for the time that it takes to adapt. And translate because it really was an act of translating knowledge. And so it required time and the time of the artist to, to illustrate. You saying this is actually like so cool for me to hear because what Deborah just said is that basically she learned how to do a graphic novel and that's really important. And at the same time, reading the script and reading the story, um, she also learned about the topic itself and it transformed how she thinks about sex tourism because it's something that's also very familiar that happens in Fortaleza where she lives and she feels she felt interpolated as a white woman from the middle class 
because a part of the project, I guess one of the things that I hope that it does is show like some of those racialized, class-based uh, experiences. Um, and so having Deborah reading it and and and, and the learning uh, about um, aspect of social exclusion that are reproduced through the campaign against sex tourism, for me, it's fantastic. It's it's been really nice to, to actually speak with you in person. Um, it's such a weird situation, huh? Because basically the three of us have made this book together um, in very different countries, uh, in very different contexts, in very different times as well. And here we are now in 2020, me and Mariev, we're, we're sitting across from each other in, in our basement uh, in Canada. You're in Fortaleza, what a storm it sounds outside, you know, <laughs> uh, Phil is. 20 kilometers up the road from us uh, in Val de Mont. So um, I, I think it's a really sort of interesting way to work with people. Uh, and I also think it's a very worthwhile way to work with people. And what I'd really like, Deborah, is someday, uh, you know, if we were able, if we were able, if we were ever able to meet all of us, uh, to actually just sit down and, and have a, a cup of coffee or a beer and, and just actually, you know, sort of talk about it uh, face to face and in person, you know, um, I, I'm just in, incredibly proud of the fact that we've we've managed to do this project and complete it uh, in, in in a few years, you know, and it's done. It's it's a book now. So mm -hmm. um, I just wanted to thank you, Deborah, for for just you know um, it, it, you know you were the perfect person to work with for this project, um, aesthetically, professionally, uh, you know, geographically, politically, everything. Um, so you know, I. I, I couldn't be happier. I couldn't be more satisfied with with Gringo Love as as a as you know uh, as a graphic novel and as a, a as a piece of serious uh, art as well, right? So that that's what I have to say. De Deborah, would you like to say anything else? Uh, it's been uh, great to be a part of a project that um, aim at democratizing knowledge. Um, that she liked being a part of that and also that there were ways in which um, in Brazil there are many people who are actually at the moment uh, thinking through graphic novel uh, as like a different medium to 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 um, uh, talk about academic research and so there are many examples of that and sh she was just delighted to be part of one of those projects. As I said earlier, wonderful for me to work collaboratively. I would not have been able to do this on my own, even though I thought it was a good idea initially. It felt a bit overwhelming to think that I could like adapt my work into a graphic novel. Um, and really, I think working together collaboratively is what made it happen with Billy thinking visually, having the skill to actually translate story in a visual mode and with Deborah illustrating. And so um, I'm, I'm also really grateful that you were both willing <laughs> to <laughs> get on the wagon and try this and see where it led. And it became bigger and bigger and bigger as I was also figuring what I was trying to accomplish with this. And so thanks to both of you for being patient uh, with, with me on this. It's funny, I often tell my students that it's not on, it's only when they're done writing their dissertation <laughs> that they really know what they want to write about. And I actually <laughs> feel that it was a bit the same with Gringo Love, that um, as we were doing the story, we were also figuring what kind of story that it was. Um, and so I'm, I'm, I really appreciate that you were both patient with like um, working with me on the kind of story. I guess for me, it's different because it's also about my research. Um, and so Gringo Love also feels like it, it finally, um, it finally um, is one way that I have had to, communicate about the kind of work that I have been doing. Um, so a part of it also feels a bit like um, the work is out there <laughs> and I'm kind of interested to see how people will engage with it. Also excited and, and looking forward, people reading it and en engaging with it. 
um, in all sorts of different ways. Um, so yeah, and that's what I have to say. And also thanks, Phil, for making this encounter among the three of us possible across the distance. Um, I also think it's extraordinary that we were able to work on this and I hope that we can all meet up in the future. Yeah. In Ponta Negra. <laughs> in Ponta Negra, sí. Yeah. <laughs> Con <Absolutely. certeza. laughs> no problem. <laughs> Billy, this second part of the interview got me thinking even more about collaborative work arrangements and what it's like to work collaboratively. Maybe you can shed a little bit of light on how uh, you worked collaboratively across time and space, uh, but also about how you approach collaborative work in general. I've discovered that I really enjoy certain types of collaborative work with people, um, in particular working on, you know, quote unquote, creative projects or Mm. non-traditional academic projects. Um, so working with yourself, Phil, uh, on this podcast program uh, has been a really interesting experience for me, uh, not just in terms of learning some of the skills and practices of editing and interviewing and broadcasting, uh, but also more importantly, to work with people who you feel that you learn a lot from and that you find yourself more enriched and more upskilled, uh, if you like, uh, as at the end of that collaborative process. So the learning experience as well as the working with another person closely experience is something that I've discovered I really, really like a lot. Yeah. And that's, uh, it's not something that we often think about when we think of collaborative work, right? That um, above the finished product that we, at the end, learn something about the process. Um, this is an aspect that I think came through with the interview with Deborah and Marie-Ève and yourself. Uh, it seems to me like everyone that was part of Gringo Love at the end learned something that was bigger than the actual graphic novel itself. This discussion of collaborative work arrangements brings me to think about some upcoming collaborative community events happening around the department. Billy, uh, what's on the agenda for us? Well, we have our weekly graduate student coffee hour that runs every Thursday from 2 to 3 p.m. And you should contact graduate peer mentors Ryan Hopkins and Kristen Kowlesser for more information. Once a month, Anthropology have their Anthgrad chat. The last one was on the 20th of October. The next one will be coming up next month, so keep your eyes and ears open for that. Just before we go, Phil, I also just want to mention uh, that the Meet the Department event last Friday, the third mm -hmm. inaugural Meet the Department event last Friday, uh, was a fantastic success. I really yes. had a lot of uh, fun uh, meeting uh, some of the students in my class, in my first year class, right? in some of my first year classes. It was organized and run by SASA. Yeah, I, I, I also participated in that and mm -hmm. um, it was my first time. So I'm speaking to you as kind of a novice okay. in this uh, Meet the Department uh, event. Uh, I really in, uh, enjoyed the style of the breakout rooms. So mm. it was done virtually. And I think, you know, virtual sort of things are awkward for everyone. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, SASA really uh, tried to foster community and tried to foster this collaborative sort of engagement with people through breakout rooms on Zoom. And uh, for me, it worked. I was able to interact with multiple students at different levels uh, from first year all the way up to third and fourth year to I had a wonderful chat with a master's student in the department as well. Um, and it also gave me an opportunity to learn about my colleagues. So in these breakout rooms, sometimes there were more than one uh, faculty member um, and it allowed me to learn a little bit about who I work with in the department and that was also uh, a really nice experience so uh, I took my hat uh, to Sasa for putting that on pulling it off uh, it was a feat to, to cross time and space uh, through Zoom <laughs> yeah. to do it um, but uh, it worked really well and I'm really looking forward to the next edition 
because I will definitely be one of the first to sign up for it again. Uh, absolutely, it was it was a lot of fun, Phil. Uh, I really enjoyed meeting um, all of these people, people that I work with, and students in my class as well. And we also got to chat with some students in our class as well as some members of SASA during our first live podcast broadcast last week as well. That's right, the Department Live. Uh, first edition happened last week uh, with great success, I would say. Um, uh, you know, aside uh, from some technical uh, little <laughs> glitches that happened, uh, you know, I- I'm here presenting as a uh, well-seasoned uh, podcaster. Uh, but you know what? Uh, issues happen even to those more experienced among us. Um, and uh, hopefully in another uh, episode of Live, we'll get into the actual technical behind-the-scenes stuff of how we're pulling it off. But um, enough about what didn't happen, right? Next week, we'll be hosting another The Department Live episode where you're able to call in and be part of the show. Details for that live event can be found in the show notes of this podcast. So scroll down, look at the show notes, and you'll see all the details for The Department Live on Friday, October 30th. Uh, We'll also be sending out... Uh, posters and ads via our social media channels and our email channels as well. Speaking of social media, do you know where to find us on Twitter, Billy? I do know where to find us on Twitter, Phil. You can follow us all on Twitter at DepartmentPod. We also have a website, www.departmentpodcast.ca. So we have Twitter, we have the website. That's good. That is good. And you can always use email at info at departmentpodcast.ca. Billy, it was really nice uh, chatting with you on this episode about graphic novels, Gringo Love, and uh, congratulations once again on launching Gringo Love. Thanks very much, Phil. That's that's a, I think that's a very nice thought to, to finish uh, this episode on. Thanks, everyone. See you next time. And hey, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.